Okay. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the day, for being with us through it, giving us grace and guidance as you're faithful to do. And we thank you for allowing us to be here tonight. We pray that we would <clears throat> have a, a profitable time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, I've got to ask you a question here. Last week, we got through um, a bunch of the characteristics of the religious temperature health of uh, the U.S. in the 1800s. I mentioned that among all kinds of things, there was also a rise of several cults that are still with us today. Okay, um, <clears throat> I didn't go in much to those. Mormon, Seventh-day Adventist, Christian Scientist, Jehovah's Witness. Um, how much do you want me to go into that? <laughs> so that's my... <laughs> that, um, I've got... I mean, I can spend some time on it. Um, if you don't, you know, aren't real clear on what they believe and so forth, I'm happy to run through that quickly. Um, so tell me what, are, are all of you completely up on all the, we call them Christian cults, which they, uh, they pretend to be Christian. So that's why we call them Christian cults, as opposed to, say, the Eastern religions, Baha'i, and just stuff that's way out there. So, <clears throat> um, yes or no? Yes. Is the answer? Yeah. Because what? Yeah, you do. And you have to know what. Okay. Well, <clears throat> the Masons are, I think they're just, they're fouled up. But, I mean, doctrinally and everything else, they're just old men that like to go around, you know, having secret handshakes and stuff. Um, they're really, really old. I mean, they've been around here for, around for a long time. They claim, they have a catchy little statement. They just say, um, Freemasonry is not a religion, it is religion. I don't even know what that means, but okay. they, they like it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, as far as historical accuracy, it's nonsense. Um, you know, going back to the building of Solomon's Temple and all that kind of stuff, there's, there's no basis archaeologically or uh, in literature of any of that but you know um, yeah they are they're not they're not Christian I mean they 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 don't have any concept of faith in Jesus as your Savior and so forth it's it's kind of a do good deeds you know bootstrap religion kind of a thing Okay, well, let's. Um, the earliest cult that was started was the Mormons, 
And I mentioned, I think, last week, the Mormons um, sprang up in, um, I think it was 1823, when um, there happened to also be quite a religious fervor, revival going on in New England. And um, the Joseph Smith family uh, were in upstate New York, I think it was Palmyra County. Um, they, for some time, kind of tagged along with the Methodists, but then they left the Methodists. The, um, you know, and I, I got to try to give a capsule form, but it's, it's a little tough with that particular um, cult. Um, <clears throat> but their roughly 18, 20-year-old son, um, Joseph Smith, had a vision um, and the angel Moroni, um, and I, all of you would know that the angel Moroni, is, his dad was Mormon, um, another angel. Um, he appeared to Joseph Smith at night, stood at the foot of his bed, and informed Joseph Smith that every religion was false. And he, he was designated him to be the vessel to start a, the new true Latter-day Saints, okay? Um, so, to try to skip some of it, um, the, the, the court records even um, in that part of the country are full of affidavits uh, from um, neighbors swearing that the, the Smith clan were ne'er-do-wells and crooks and th petty thieves and they were constantly on the move because they'd get run out of the farm. They never owned much. Um, but um, a key important thing to remember, I think, and it really does, I think, have an impact on later issues. Joseph Smith's he was considered in the neighborhood a teller of tall tales. He was a yarn spinner. And, but his, I guess his full-time occupation was um, searching for uh, buried treasure. Okay, now, I am going to tell you this only once. I'm not making any of this up. Okay, it's, it's, it's some of it's just pure insanity. But I'm not making it up. Um, and the way he searched for hidden treasure was he had a, you know, like an Abe Lincoln hat, stovepipe hat, and he would put an agate, a large agate in the, you know, upside down, and put it, this agate in, and they either called it peak, P-E-E-K stone, or peep stone, but you'd put it over and like you witch for water, well, you'd you know, you'd hold this up over your head or over your face and block out light and you'd walk around over the ground and when you got over hidden treasure, buried treasure, we don't know who buried it there, but that agate would glow and then, you know, you start digging. Um, <clears throat> and the story is that the all of Palmyra County in New York was pockmarked <laughs> all over the place with holes dug searching for treasure. The agate was, didn't work because no matter what it indicated, they never found anything, okay? 
Uh, but keep that in the back of your head. They, as I said, moved around, but stayed in that county for a while. And then um, he began to have a series of other um, visions. And the biggie was directing him to buried treasure. Moroni appeared to him and told him where some golden tablets were buried. Okay? And so he followed the directions. He went and he dug up this box. And in the box were golden tablets um, written in Egyptian hieroglyphics. Okay? And alongside, in the same box, were giant um, special spectacles, glasses, large enough that you only looked through one lens. Okay? Now, the only way the Egyptian hieroglyphics on the golden tablets could be translated was if you, I mean, if you're holding the glasses and you go over here, you can't read it. But if you get, if you look through the glasses, aha, you can translate the Egyptian hieroglyphics. Okay? And so he brought it, he brought the golden tablets and the special spectacles to his house. I'm not sure it was his house. I think there was a guy named Martin somebody who was a pretty, um, not bright, um, but he was kind of his assistant. Well, so Joseph Smith goes into a little kind of an alcove or little, you know, um, what would you call it? A little thing off the kitchen where you put canned goods, okay? And he sat in there, made himself a little chair and all this, and covered over with a curtain and sat in there translating the golden tablets onto paper. Then he would pass the paper through the split in the, in the curtains to Martin Harris, this was his name, to Martin Harris, whose farm it was. And Martin, of course, then compiled, you know, kept page one, page two, whatever. Now Martin saw, um, when Martin was asked if he had seen the golden tablets, he, he assured them that he had seen them, but with the eye of faith, which means he didn't see them. He didn't see the spectacles. He didn't see anything, okay? Nobody, no one ever saw them except for Joseph Smith. Now, when he got done translating, which was the Book of Mormon, when he got done translating all this, um, he was asked, of course, by both friends and foes, um, show us the tablets. And he, you know, he was very troubled with the fact, he'd love to tell, he'd love to show them to him, but the angel Moroni came and took them back. And so they're gone. Um, but what remains is the Book of Mormon, which is, I don't know, I can't remember, uh, 1,500 pages of pure gibberish. Um, it is, there are at least 50,000, um, seriously, 50,000 direct snippets of quotes from the King James Version of the Bible, interwoven with other nonsense, okay? The gist, um, 
the gist of the Book of Mormon is this, that Jesus only went to the Eastern Hemisphere. He went to Palestine, he lived there, he was crucified there, so forth. Um, after his resurrection, he, I mean, why do you only tell half the world about himself? So he needed to come over here to the Western Hemisphere. And so um, he visited over here, and I don't know how long he visited over here, and I get, it gets a little murky there, um, but somewhere, but in the meantime, in the meantime, I think it was about 600 A.D., not positive. Um, it's hard to keep the fantasies straight. Um, and I remind you one more time, even though it's only, I said I wouldn't say it but once, I'm not making any of this up. A group of people under, the, under a guy named Nephi escaped Israel. Um, I think it was, a, I, I, I can't remember, it's 600 something, a B, a, B, C, or A, D. Anyway, they came over to, they were coming to the New World. They weren't sure where they were coming, going to, but they, they came out through the Mediterranean, okay? They ended up traveling out into the Atlantic. They went south. They went clear around the base of South America, and they came up and landed um, on the coast of what is now Chile. Okay. Now all of this was done um, in a wooden submarine. I'm not making it up. In which, quote. When the air grew stale, they drilled holes in it. Now, maybe we should pause and think about that for a minute, okay? But I'm not making anything up. This is nuts, okay? Now, um, where do I, I'll, I'll finish that part. The Nephites landed in what's today Chile. They spread over all of South America, Central America, North America in a, the most vast civilization. Millions upon millions upon millions of people, vast cities, great buildings and everything else, of which there isn't a shred of archeological evidence anywhere, okay? But the Nephites spread all over the place. I can't remember if it's because Jesus then came up and appeared to them and told them about the gospel, but somehow there was another group, another man who had a following and a family, and his name was Laman. And his followers were called the Lamanites or the Lamanites, okay? Um, a huge battle war broke out between the Nephites and the Lamanites. The Nephites, the good people, lost the battle. Um, the last, or one of the very last Nephites who, you know, bought the farm, 
um, at the tail end of the battle was Mormon, guy named Mormon. He, I mean, if you're, you know, if the armies are coming and you're the last guy, it's like the Alamo, you're the last one to go, you got time to come up, make yourself a book of golden tablets, um, write Egyptian hieroglyphics all over them, and bury it, and then, you know, take an arrow between the eyes, okay? Um, so Mormon wrote the Book of Mormon, buries it, and then, of course, all these 1,800 years or whatever it was later, Moroni, his son, directs Joseph Smith to dig this up and write the book. Now, uh, there's lots of theology in the Book of Mormon, in addition to the story of this great civilization, this horrible war, and all this stuff. And I forgot to tell you, this will make sense to you. I can't talk about the Mormons without being sarcastic. I just got to level with you. You know what happened to the Lamanites? The bad guys that beat the good guys? They were cursed and turned into Indians. I'm not making it up. I'm not making it up. So, now here's the history of the world. Um, we know, all of us here, I trust, basic Christian theology, okay? Um, let me just say this. Um, with no exception, there isn't a single doctrine of the Bible and of historic Christianity that the Mormons don't utterly deny. Not one doctrine of Christianity do they deny, or do they uphold. They deny every single one of them. They have been masters in the last 30 years of presenting themselves as, well, we're Christians just like you, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we believe in our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, who is he? Well, you gotta figure out, you, you need to know that, see, Jesus and the devil are brothers. And when Jesus got chosen to be the Savior, it made the devil so mad he turned into the devil. That's, what, that's how come he is the devil. Because he didn't get chosen to be Jesus. Okay? Now, um, I never understood completely who God is because God made Adam and Eve and put them in the garden. And Eve was one, uh, quote, this is in the Book of Mormon, one of Adam's celestial wives. Okay? Um, to back out and just give you one overview, and I will back this up, and this is backed up by do court documents in Nauvoo, Illinois, okay? Joseph Smith was a beady-eyed sex maniac who was into 14 to 16-year-old girls, okay? And he kept a couple of brothels busy in Nauvoo, Illinois, okay? Um, plus, of course, with all of the multiple wives you're supposed to have. But the interesting thing is, Joe got himself in trouble because he married Eva. And Eva, even though God told Joseph Smith that they were to have multiple wives, Eva didn't swallow it. Okay? The rest of the Mormons did, but not Joseph. He had to go to the brothels because Eva wasn't going to put up with extra wives, okay? So, um, 
God made Adam and Eve. And then Adam <clears throat> worked his way up to where Adam, the God we pray to in heaven now, that's Adam. Adam worked his way all the way up to the top rung, and he's now God. Okay? Now, so Adam worked himself up to being God, came to earth, had physical relations with Mary, and that's where Jesus came from. Okay? So there's no virgin birth. There's, there is no trinity. Joseph Smith called that a crazy three-headed God. Um, the Holy Spirit, as far as we know, and Scripture tells us, the Holy Spirit's the third person of the Trinity. According to Joseph Smith, the Holy Spirit is a fluid, a liquid. I don't know what that means. Um, but that's, you know... Um, if you're a good Mormon and you, you know, are baptizing in the Mormon church and the whole business, then you will go to heaven. You will have your own planet that you will rule over. But you guys, including myself, we, there is some bright, there's some silver lining here. We're not going to be in heaven, heaven like the Mormons are, having our own planet and all that. But we will be mowing the grass, getting the paper, and things like that for the Mormons on their planet. Okay? Um, by the way, you know the Mormons are heavy, heavy, heavy into genealogy. Everybody knows that? Do you know why? The reason is they believe that if you can find every, any dead person that you can get their name, you can have, as a Mormon, you can be baptized by proxy for that person even if they've been dead 1,500 years. I don't care. And that makes them a Mormon. And so that's why they're into genealogy. Have you ever read, it's not, I, I don't think it's been, as long as six months ago. I read in the Wall Street Journal for the umpteenth time, the um, Anti-Defamation League, the Jews, are screaming at the Mormons because I would leave them alone. It's, it's, it, what they're doing is such utter nonsense that I wouldn't even bother with it. But they are, the Mormons are getting a hold of genealogies of Jews, especially from the Holocaust Memorial and things like that, and then getting baptized by proxy for all these Jews and making Jews who've been dead for a hundred years or longer Mormons. Well, I wouldn't even complain about it. It's, it's idiotic. It's, it's crazy. I wouldn't raise a sweat over it. But the ADA's really worked up about it and threatened lawsuits and all kinds of stuff. Um, Anyway, um, <clears throat> now, um, in the grand scheme of things, I, I guess step back and take uh, a look at everything. In heaven, um, every man in heaven, I have no idea how many, but every man in heaven has a whole bunch of wives, okay? And they are busy little beavers in heaven because they are remember the guy was a sex fiend ok 
okay? They're doing nothing in heaven but having spirits. And they believe in what's called transmigration of souls. Spirits are made in heaven. They got no place to go. How can they come to earth unless they got a body to inhabit? So we down here have to have multiple wives and be just as busy as they are up there so we can provide bodies for the spirits up there to have some place to come in here, okay? Um, I am making none of this up. Um, now, probably let me sum up this way. I do believe that the old brand of Mormons of 30 years ago, who were very hostile, aloof, and made much of the fact we are the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ. You aren't. You guys are all wrong. They have hired a good PR t team over the years, and now well, we're just like you. Um, somebody was talking to me here in our church, good soul, attends one of these local kind of non-denominational Bible studies, women's Bible studies, and <clears throat> a woman started coming and, you know, studying along and, you know, reading the Bible and all that. Well, finally brought a Book of Mormon and gave it to this person from our church. I just want you to have this. It's been so good to be here and we're going to keep studying the Bible and all this, but I'd, I'd like for you to... And so she came and talked to me. I said, I said, listen, I firmly believe that the most sinister, deceitful bunch of the Mormons. Um, we've had them here. When we were meeting down at the old building, Davis building, they were there. They would come three or four at a time the skinny ties, the white shirts, the little badge, and sit in the back and then and just stare at me. Um, now, it didn't bother me. Um, but they're just, they are seductive and they're deceitful. And for that reason, um, and for the reason that they promote family and family values, um, you know, they're teetotalers, no alcohol, no tobacco, no, won't even drink, you know, caffeine. Um, they, they can't be faulted for the family values that they'll push. And that, that can entangle gullible people. Um, so, um, the Mormons, um, the Mormons are just a mess, and, and they've also done a wonderful job of a completely false um, narrative that they were just persecuted. They were persecuted because they were, you, you go back 150 years, and you have a group move in. They, they moved all over the place. They moved to a place in Kirtland, Ohio. From there, they got run out because, again, of the young Remember the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ here, what, two years ago, three years ago? Uh, Warren Jeffs down in Texas, and they, they had, what, 300 um, child brides, 12-year-old um, girls being married to these officials. Um, remember, you go back 150 years, 
to the Wild West, which was then the Wild West, on the east shores of the Mississippi River. They'll shoot you for that. It wasn't persecution by any means. It was you people are, you know, you are philanderers and predators and uh, pedophiles, and we're running you out of town. They ran them east or further west, where Joseph Smith and the um, they put together an attempt to assassinate the governor of Missouri. Um, and at one point, Joseph Smith said he was going to run for president. Um, at any rate, then they came back from Missouri, and they ended up going to Nauvoo, Illinois. And in Nauvoo, Illinois, they set up a printing press, started printing a magazine, a little newspaper, about, and kind of took over the town because it wasn't that large. So finally, um, they... You don't know the whole story, but supposedly um, the Mormons said that the townspeople burned their, their press, their little printing press, and the little place where they were printing down. A lot of people at the same time said, no, they started it themselves so they could plead persecution. Well, anyway, they got arrested. They put them up on the second floor of the courthouse in Nauvoo, Illinois, and a mob... Um, a mob stormed the jail. And I, you know, I don't know for sure, but I think, I think the sheriff probably says, don't do this. Um, and then got out of the way and unlocked the door. They went, up to the, they went up to the second story and they took Hiram, Joseph's brother, and Joseph, shot them both and threw them out the second story window. Okay? So that brought that page to a close. Then they traveled a little further. I think they went back over into Missouri and they splintered into about three groups. There's the Reorganized Church of, Christ, uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, and then, um, but Brigham Young took over the biggest group of them. And they felt like the only thing they could do was flee the United States. Well, we, we think, okay, they got to go uh, overseas. No, um, you get beyond Missouri and it's not America anymore. Um, it's just the territory. So they went all the way to Utah and set up there in Salt Lake City uh, and they were literally out of the United States. So they couldn't do anything to them. Um, anybody, heard, anybody ever heard of Mountain Meadows Massacre? Okay, a few of you. That's a, it's a fascinating, tragic story. But um, it was the annihilation, except for some children that were kidnapped. Many of them never even came, showed up again. Um, in southeastern, I think, Utah, of a wagon train going from Arkansas to Sacramento. And um, anyway, they dressed up like Paiute Indians, killed them, most of them, took all their stuff, um, the, the wagon master was an oddball kind of a guy, and he had a coach. I mean, you're pulling a coach going, you know, uh, going to cross the Mojave Desert or whatever. But he had a glass windows, glass windows and everything else in this coach. Well, um, the Mormons, of course, knew nothing about this massacre had nothing to do with it at all. But wouldn't you know it, that Brigham showed up driving that coach 
in the streets of Salt Lake City. Just a miracle, I guess, probably from Moroni, uh, to get that um, to them. Now, in 19, you know who John Huntsman? Ever heard of John Huntsman? Okay, he was the governor of Utah. This is in the 90s or maybe early 2000s. A book came out, interesting book on that, and there was some effort by archaeologists and whoever else and historians, they wanted to do some excavations, they wanted to, you know, and um, it got all the way up to Huntsman and Huntsman said, absolutely not. They, he tore down a makeshift marker that some historians had put up at that spot and did his best just within the last 20 years to squelch anything about it, okay? Um, so, <clears throat> finally, partly because of that and some other stuff, the U.S. Army got together and started marching towards them, towards Utah. Well, right about that time, they petitioned for statehood. And Congress said, you eliminate polygamy as a condition for becoming a part of the Union. And so I don't know if Brigham Young, I think he might have still been alive, I'm not sure, but whoever the head was, Brigham Young or someone else, got a vision from the Lord that, okay, we're putting a stop to polygamy now. So they, they joined um, the, the Union. I think it was in the 70s, and I could be wrong here, but somewhere around the 70s, they did not allow blacks to hold any office in the church, including any ministerial, they don't really have ministers. Um, it's too long of a story. But at any rate, um, and so they were threatened, they were threatened that they would lose their 501c3 status if they didn't allow blacks. And you know what? They got another message right from heaven, that they should allow blacks to be in the Melchizedek priesthood or the Aaronic, A-A-R-O-N, you know, priesthood. What an amazing God. Um, so anyway, spent too much time with the Mormons, but they kind of get you going. Um, I mentioned Seventh-day Adventists last week, so I don't need to spend, I don't think, much time there. Another one that grew up in the latter half, 1800s, Christian scientists, and it was kind of a, a mind over matter philosophy. Um, and it was hardly a religion. They claimed that to honor Jesus, but also other philosophers and people. Um, it's kind of hard to explain, except just let me sum it up as this. You guys, we're, I'm talking, you think I'm talking because you think you're here and I think I'm here, but none of us are here. That's Christian science. <laughs> um, we're not really here. Um, if you can gain enough knowledge mentally that you have power, you, you have power over pain and all that because you realize the pain you have, you don't really have because your leg doesn't really hurt because you're not really here. None of us are here. <laughs> okay? Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses of the, um, at least outwardly, the Jehovah's Witnesses are more hostile 
um, to Christians, Christianity, than even the Mormons in their, um, before their fake days. Um, but the Jehovah's Witnesses, actually, now this is extra credit. If you're, you're going to go to heaven for sure, if you answer this question. If you can go clear back to when we first started this study, which probably feels like it was about five years ago, but uh, back in the fall, we talked about some of the very, very early Christian um, heresies that the church councils had to deal with. If you remember one called um, Arianism, A-R-I-A-N, okay, from a guy named Arius. And he taught that Jesus, there was no Trinity. Jesus was not God, but he was the highest created being by God um, and so they challenged him, of course, on that as far as the deity of Christ. Um, and Arianism was condemned. Really, Jehovah's Witnesses, Witness is a revival of that. Um, they're much smaller. Um, if you see any of their stuff, by the way, it's surprising how many doctor's offices, for instance, will have stuff printed either by Watchtower Tract Society, that's Jehovah's Witness, or Review and Herald Publishing, that's Seventh-day Adventist, okay? And a lot of dentist, you know, <laughs> rooms or you know, waiting rooms, well, you'll, you'll find, you know, some of that stuff. Um, let's see. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they were started by a guy named Rutherford, um, and he was just kind of a common crook, um, he was sued um, in a, by like the 1880s and 90s. He was in court a lot for false claims. He had something he called, he was selling miracle wheat. Um, and this was in the 1870s, 80s, a dollar. That's a lot of money. A dollar for a quart of miracle wheat. But I can't remember how many hundreds of bushels this would produce well they didn't and so they got him for some kind of you know crookedness um but uh, the jehovah's witnesses um, are a little less plain or clear to me um they have a couple of the, their basic doctrine is this that jesus is not god um but they also, but yet, they believe Jesus is returning to the earth. Not as God, but there's a second coming. But you guys don't know this. The second coming has already happened. And, it, and I'll tell you when it happened. It happened in 1914. They knew where it is. They ain't telling. But Jesus showing up in 1914 is what kicked off World War I. Okay, that was all a war between, you know, good and evil, all that. Um, and the second big conflagration that's coming is going to be all-out nuclear war, which will be prompted by Jesus as far as a punishment and a separation of good and bad and all that. Um, and... Um, by the way, the Jehovah's Witnesses are the ones, too, who believe, 
I don't know how they keep track nowadays, but originally they believed that there were 144,000. It would be the first basic 144,000 Jehovah's Witness people um, were, be, were, were the ones that were going to go to heaven, heaven. I guess if you're, you know, a couple more beyond the 140,000, you get to live on a new earth. Um, you don't, you're not in heaven. Um, and it used to be that only the people that are in 144,000 take, could take communion. But I don't know who checked if, you know, if you got a wall, you know, card in your wall or whatever, that you're 144,000. But they get that out of the book of Revelation, which is purely figurative language, but they take it literally. Um, the one thing I remember, we had the, we had the Jehovah's Witnesses come to our, one of our classes at seminary and you know, present their thinking. Um, and <clears throat> they have a Bible interpretation philosophy that has a name for it. It's called um, Knight, K-N-I-G-H-T, from chess. Knight, jump, exegesis. Exegesis is to draw out. And so technically every time I stand up here and preach and I read a text and explain what it means, that's exegesis, okay? That's drawing out what it's saying. Another term, Greek term, eisegesis means to read in to a verse something that you think is there or should have been there. Okay, you don't want eisegesis. We want proper exegesis. But the Jehovah's Witness interprets scripture by what's called night jump exegesis. Now, I know nothing about chess, but apparently a knight can go everywhere. Is that right? Anybody know? Okay, or they can't? You're, you're ruining everything here. Um, whatever, okay, whatever it means. What, what they do, it means they can take, they will take half of Psalm 22, verse 32, and glue it together with Revelation 1, 12a, and make a verse out of it, and it's fine. So interpreting Scripture has nothing to do with context, it has nothing to do with, they can just do whatever they want with it, and they do. That's how they come up with all their, a lot of their teachings. Um, they, they even went to the trouble of making uh, what's called the New World Translation of the Bible. And you'll run across it once in a while if you're in a bookstore that has a religious section and sells Bibles. You might run across a New World Translation. That's the Jehovah's Witness Translation. They have for 60, 70 years since they made it always refused to ever, pub ever uh, publish any of the names of the translators. Um, one of their most famous verses, because you know they say Jesus is not God, that gets them into trouble is John chapter 1, where in the beginning was, the Greek is, in the beginning was the God. And the Word was with the God. And the God was the Word. And then down at verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. Okay? So, if, if you ever open a New World Translation to that verse, it says, in the beginning was 
God. And the Word was with God. And the Word was, and then they have lowercase g-o-d. And the Word was a God. Okay. Now there's, there's no um, basis in the Greek language at all for that translation. But if you're, if you're that far off, I mean, you can change the scripture and it doesn't make any difference. So um, they are very secretive, very um, um, exclusive. Um, I think, and I can tell this without, it's not like I'm betraying confidences because um, we've talked much over the years. Pam, Pam Kosmicki, our office manager, a couple of her, I don't know what it is, sisters, whoever, there are um, Jove's Witness. Um, I mean, if a family member dies, they can't sit with the family up front. They have to stay in the very back if they go at all. Um, and I don't want to get in trouble here with, um, I can't even remember the name of it, but there's a window cleaning outfit here in town that one of Pam's relatives, and they're Jehovah's Witness. Um, before I ever knew that, um, we asked them if they, if they would give us a contract to do the windows periodically here, you know, all the big windows. No. Because they were, were the wrong church, you know. Any church other than them is the wrong one. Um, so they're, they've never broken out of that either. They don't seem to match, they don't seem to really care whether they can collect people and, and attract people or not. They're just kind of keeping themselves and that's it. Okay, um, before we try to make some ground here um, on the other history, um, any questions or anything on all this? Nobody. Everybody's perfectly clear on all this. Okay, that we. Uh, but I've spent enough time on it. Um, something I mentioned last week, but didn't get enough time to to spend on it. I'll be short. I did mention that in the 1860s, right after the end of the Civil War. Um, by the way, in 1858, there was a, another one of these great, you know, widespread revivals. And in fact, it's called the Revival of 1858. <laughs> okay. Um, but it, it, I mean, it's in the church history books. In, I think it was New York. A couple of lay people just started going to a church back then, even when I started in the ministry. Churches were open. We never locked the doors. You know, and so people began to gather, hardly without announcing it, at one of the churches in New York and praying during the noon hour. And um, more and more people began gathering. Um, pretty soon the church was filled and then other churches were filled. And there was a real outbreak of a return f to God which I think was preparatory on God's part for the, the tearing up of the place in the Civil War that began just two, th three years later. But at any rate, um, in an effort to try to keep that going, 
they still tried to meet at that church and pray at noon for till about the 1960s, hoping that the same result would come again, some revival. It never did, which I think is an indication God, he doesn't get boxed in. He does things certain ways and then he does something else. Um, Also, interestingly, in both the Southern, in the Confederate camps, and in the Union camps during the Civil War, there were a lot of evangelists plus chaplains that were already there, but a lot of preachers north and south that would go preach in the camps. Um, And there were many conversions in both the Confederate and the Union. Um, I have a book on the revivals during the Civil War among the the armies, um, which is kind of strange. Right after the Civil War, 60s, 1866, so forth, there was an, um, what I called, mentioned last week, it's called historically the holiness movement. Now, the holiness movement was primarily um, groups of people gradually peeling off from the Methodist church. The Methodist church, which specialized their, their particular doctrine was not only that God forgives our sins, but he can cleanse our heart in the filling of the Spirit from the inherited bent to sinning that we're all born with, that that can be cleansed from your heart, okay? Um, That isn't a new doctrine at all, but it became, it was revived by the Methodists. Well, the Methodists, by the 1860s, it had been 70-some years since Wesley had died, so you're into well down the road generations, and the Methodists were stopping preaching that doctrine and getting into liberal um, philosophy and so forth. So there were regionally all around the U.S. there were groups of um, churches in the Methodist Church that said they're they're going liberal. Let's get out. Well, one of the one of the things that aided that were these big interdenominational camp meetings, and I've talked to you about those. And they, they began, there was an organization in, I think it was like the 1870s or somewhere in there, started, it was called the National Association for, National Camp Meeting Association for the Promotion of Holiness. Okay, that was the whole name. Um, but the, the camp meeting movement really took off all across the country through the 18, starting in the 1860s. And today, today it's on the wane, but there are still, oh, hundreds of camps around the country, a lot of them in the Midwest, that they still meet on an annual basis and they'll have thousands of people go to them. Um, And... You know, some are obviously much bigger than others, but there are a lot of those that are still functioning today. There's lots of gray heads there um, for most of them. But um, as recently, well, they still go on, but I don't get invited to preach anymore, Adam, because I moved here. Um, I mean, I moved to the backwater where there aren't camps around here. But I used to do a couple summer camps a year. Um, average maybe two or three a year 
um, in Ohio and Indiana and when I lived back there. Um, and they were kind of sad to me. Um, a guy I knew very well, great preacher, uh, my dad's generation, made the statement. He said, these, these camp meetings and these kinds of gatherings are usually going on, he said, nothing but the momentum of a memory. And that's pretty accurate. It's sad, but they dwindle and they still try to keep the same things going. And I could write, I could write a couple of books um, about camp meeting weirdness. Okay. Um, you ever heard people play a saw? <laughs> well in a camp in Portland that the whole city grew around, you know, it was sitting on a mint as far as property when it's always Douglas fir, but a neighborhood, you know, for miles around it. Um, and I was involved with that. I, I don't know how many times I preached at that camp. Um, but there was some guy, I don't know who he was, but he would dry, ride on the Portland TriMet bus system for miles with his saw and a bow, you know, a violin bow. And then he'd sit up on the front row, and if you didn't know he was there, um, you know, you sit on the front row, and you, you put that saw blade, and then you, you know, you, and you jiggle your legs together so the things, you know, because go, wah, 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 and, and you're, you know, with the bow up and down. And it's the most unearthly, witchcraft sound you've ever heard in your life. Um, I mean, it's just, and this guy felt it his duty to accompany every song that the congregation sang. And you'd hear that. It was, camps are just crazy. <laughs> but anyway, um, so when I moved here and got too far away, you know, to go to some of those, I I don't recall shedding any tears, but anyway, um, <clears throat> that movement then, uh, though, produced a bunch of denominations that we know about today. They that that movement probably ended up in somewhere I'm going to say 60 to 80 different denominations. Okay, now prominent among those, the Nazarenes, um, Church of God, Anderson. Um, Wesleyans, um, Free Methodists, Evangelical Methodists, Independent Methodists, um, Congregational Methodists, um, but they're in, in a lot of them regional, some in the south, some in the northwest, some in the northeast, um, but a lot of new denominations came out of all these people that were peeling off of the Methodists. Interestingly, at least to me it is. What is today? What's the date? Fifth? Fourth? The second Sunday, the global Methodist church became official. They split off the United Methodist Church, and there are millions of them. It was a huge split down the middle of a big denomination. Um, and they split over the whole LBGT 
pastors and all, all that business. Um, and so they're still at it as far as dividing and whatever. Um, <clears throat> so Salvation Army came out of it. Um, but it, as I said, a bunch of denominations. Now, let's, I've only got a few minutes, but we can at least get started because next week's it. Um, right about the turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s, you have, in the 1900s, you have a rise of quite a few different groups. Um, out of the same holiness movement came what originally, well, they're, we will, they're labeled the Pentecostals out of, sort of, out of Pentecostalism came what we label today the charismatic movement, okay? There's, there's a difference there. Um, there was in 1907, 1908, something in LA called the Azusa Street Revival, um, and <clears throat> that they emphasized miracles, speaking in tongues, healings, and things of that sort. Um, they were generally not accepted in a lot of the traditional um, churches, even these um, new splits off of the Methodists. Um, and so that began really a movement of its own. Um, and the, the, the Pentecostals, um, and of course there's exceptions, but the Pentecostals believed in, um, well, most of them believed in a second work of grace, being filled with the Holy Spirit, just like we do. Okay? There were others that believed in technically, technically what you might call a third work of grace. They believed in being saved, being purified in heart, and then being filled with the Holy Spirit. In both cases, whether it was a second or a third work, and there was bickering over it, the, the proof of, early on, the proof that you were filled with the Spirit was speaking in an unknown language. It wasn't, it was the proof, not a, the, okay? Now, that broke down to some degree within the Pentecostal groups as to whether it was you had to have the gift of tongues to prove that you were filled with the Spirit. So there was some division there. Um, later began coming out of what originally was the Pentecostal movement came a much broader, I would say, much thinner, way thinner uh, movement, probably in the 70s, maybe late 60s and the 70s. That's labeled the charismatic movement. Now the charismatics had some relation to the Pentecostals, but the Charismatics weren't necessarily Pentecostals. Um, this was a movement of much emotionalism. Um, and if you remember way back 
we looked at four um, four levels of authority. One is scripture. Two is tradition, meaning what the church for 2,000 years has believed and interpreted scripture and so forth. Three is reason, our brains. Four is um, experience or feelings, okay? Charismatic is based almost entirely, in my opinion, on emotions. The most untrustworthy of all of our faculties. Um, so doctrine is not important. It was, doctrine was much more important, or it still is, with Pentecostals. But Charismatics don't worry too much about doctrine. Um, I, I really believe that, that it's dominated by uh, emotionalism and the experience of whatever at church. Um, now, along with a lot of that, <clears throat> Um, at the tail end of Pentecostalism, maybe a part of it, but also into Charismatic, um, originally Pentecostal, were a lot of the healers. Now, I'm, I can remember, I don't, that's all I just remember the name. Kind of a forerunner, early forerunner, was a guy named A.A. A. Allen. I don't know how many ever, ever, ever even heard of him. Even before him, there was Amy Semple, McPherson, okay? She built a big tabernacle, got a bunch of Hollywood people. Um, her movement, which got kind of quirky, but her movement ended up morphing into the Four Square Church. Um, and a lot of emotional, a lot of healing and things of that sort. And I'm not saying there, there isn't healing. God heals people. But... Um, then you have in the um, probably the most prominent, at least in my lifetime, or that I remember well, that totally eclipsed some of the earlier kind of traveling healers would have been Oral Roberts. Um, and he was a giant as far as in compared to all the rest of them. The rest of them were kind of tent meeting types. Um, and he was, um, you know, he founded a school and so forth. Um, and you have a lot of guys that followed in his train and, in my opinion, got worse and worse or more emotional. Um, so now we're dealing today, and I think these guys are even uh, like Benny Hinn, but I think he's, you know, he's on the, he's circling the drain. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, these guys are getting old. And it's kind of hard for them to pick which Mercedes or Bentley to drive. Um, um, Kenneth Copeland is another one. Um, you've got a bunch of these guys that are just snake oil salesmen, as far as I'm concerned. That's just all they are. Um, pardon me? Poor old Jimmy. I think, yeah, personally, yeah. But, I, but, but he's a sad one to me. Here, here's why. Um, I was talking to somebody just the other day about him. Um, obviously, I don't agree with his theology. I never did. But you talk about a guy that's gifted, not only musically, but he can preach. I mean, he's... And have you ever heard when his son Donnie tried to take over? Donnie's a dud. 
I mean, he's not around as far as I know. He tried to inherit it. He couldn't talk his way out of a paper bag. Jimmy had it, okay? Um, but, of course, he brought ruin on himself. Um, and, you know, um, some of those guys, I think, like take Jim Baker. I look at a guy like Jim Baker. I think if you saw him as a three-month-old, you'd know there's a crook. Um, I mean, he, he had it all over. He's still on TV now with a uh, white goatee and a buzzed hair selling stuff, you know. Um, you, you never keep those guys down. But there, a, a guy like Jimmy Swaggart is more of a tragedy to me because I think God gave him gifts and may very well have called him. But he loved Jimmy, you know what I mean? Um, but... Um, you get into, I'll tell you what, we'll quit in three minutes. You get into backtracking just a little bit in the 1900s. By the time you get into the 19-teens, um, meanwhile, back of the ranch, while you got the Pentecostals and all that going on, you have, and some of these cults taken off, you have um, the fundamentalist liberal divide. That started out, or maybe one of the earliest things was what, 1910, was the Scopes Monkey Trial, and, and uh, the starting of teaching evolution in the schools and some of those kinds of things. Well, the liberals seemed to really take the day. Um, all the mainline churches can date back to their Presbyterians, the Methodists, you know, um, whoever. That's when they started their really what you would call not just decline, almost a headlong rush to social gospel, um, you know, the social justice stuff, um, and just all that stuff. <clears throat> the fundamentalists were, of course, considered gap-toothed Appalachia dwellers. And um, we believe in, in the Bible and you're stupid and so forth. One of the guys, I would say a guy who basically um, helped bring fundam fundamentalism, whatever they labeled it, because it was thrown at the conservatives by the liberals. But one of the guys that, if you could say, redeemed fundamentalism gave it some credibility, some class, and elevated it was Billy Graham, also in the 50s. Um, so as the tide was, you know, coming in with the liberals, um, Billy Graham was really um, an answer to that. And I think helped to revive, you know, revive the conservative Bible-believing churches and kind of um, build a bulwark, a fence against the liberals, okay? Um, and that's what I can start, I could remember as I was, you know, growing up, especially in the 60s, um, everything was, you know, the mainliners versus the quote, fundamentalists, which today, really, fundamentalists have sort of been renamed evangelicals, okay? They, the liberals mean kind of the same thing. It's still a 
pejorative term. It's a term that is, you know, condescending. Um, but that was a huge deal in, uh, during the 50s. So um, I'll just have to quit there. Um, so we'll, we'll finish um, Rise of the Megachurches um, and some interesting statistics from just the last couple of years regarding the rise and return to liturgy and, or liturgical churches where there's a lot of ritual and so forth and reasons for that. So anyway, we better quit. Um, so next week is um, our last time, so we'll have to kind of wrap up. If you, I don't know if you'll do this, I'll ask you, but you probably, you know, um, might forget it. Um, any questions um, that you've got that we can hit next week, um, we'll, we'll try to deal with, okay? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, go with us, I pray. Keep us safe. Keep your hand upon us. Help each of us, Lord. Walk in the light of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, you are dismissed.